Hi everyone, this is uh, Samuel Syed uh, interviewing Paul Murphy, uh, talking about CETA. Uh, so basically, we're everyone's heard a bit about CETA and the new kind of free trade deal that's been going through the doll and stuff like that, and the investor court system and all things relating to it. So there's a lot of questions which are kind of being asked of us about CETA. Like, what is it? Where they come from? Why is it bad for us? Uh, should we oppose it? How do we oppose it? So I'm here with Paul Murphy, people for profit TD, Dumb Southwest, uh, as you all know, uh, to talk about CETA and kind of give the rundown of what the problems with it are and how do we fight it. So, uh, hey Paul, how are you doing? I'm good, thank you, Sammy. Hello, Hi. everybody. Oh, nice to have you here. So, uh, first of all, I suppose the question is. What is CETA? You know, where is it originated from and things like that. So, yeah, so CETA is a trade agreement. Um, it stands for the Comprehensive Economic and Trade Agreement. And it's a trade agreement which was negotiated between the European Union and Canada and was signed in October uh, 2016 and partially came into effect in 2017. Um, I mean, actually, and I was in the European Parliament from 2011 to 2014. It was a big focus of my work then because I was on the, the Trade Committee and was responsible for the left group in following um, CETA. Um, and what CETA is, effectively, it's it's part of a new generation of what are known as kind of um, mega regional trade agreements. So people might have heard previously about TTIP, which was the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership, which was a deal which was being negotiated between the EU and the US, um, which was a failed attempt at one of these. Another was a thing called the Trans-Pacific uh, Partnership, um, which was another US attempt to have one of these kind of large regional agreements like, like NAFTA, um, I suppose. Um, and something just to say to people is um, trade agreements historically were about uh, tariffs, so kind of custom barriers. Um, like if a, if a good comes in, you have to pay a certain amount of taxes on it. Um, but the, the truth is now that most trade deals don't have much to do with tariffs. So the average levels of um, tariffs between the EU and the US, for example, where there isn't such an agreement now, is 3.5% one way and 5.2% the other way. So they're quite low. They're, they're not very substantial. And so what all these trade agreements are about these days are what in technical terms they call uh, non-tariff or regulatory barriers. Um, and basically what that translates into the lives of ordinary people is labor standards, environmental standards, consumer rights uh, standards. Those things are a barrier to trade and they want to drive them down. They want to use trade agreements to have a race to the bottom. And I presume we'll get into it, but CETA does that in a whole bunch of different ways. And one thing to just note is that, like, in this negotiating process, um, there's the representatives of big business in Europe on the one side and the representatives of big business in Canada on the other side. Um, that's, who's, that's who's there. It's the European Commission and the Canadian government. And, you know, nowhere in this situation are the interests of ordinary people being represented. In reality, like... They're negotiating with each other for each of their what's called like offensive and defensive interests of each different trade block or country. Um, but they're also negotiating together to kind of screw over working class people, to work together to undermine democracy, to work together to enhance corporate rights. And that's what CETA does. Well, you're talking about kind of screwing over working class people. Uh, so 
and you talk, mentioned consumer rights and all that kind of stuff. So, like, what exactly are the main issues of CETA, like, concretely speaking? You know, when people think, well, we all kind of know this CETA deal is it's a deal negotiated by the 1%. What concretely makes it that? Yeah, I mean, one is it's just a general thing um, that this is part of, um, you know, an attempt, and it's a kind of a two-sided process, but an attempt at an increased integration of the global economy on a neoliberal uh, basis, premised on um, free trade, largely privatized or overwhelmingly privatized um, trade, um, and using these trade deals to spread neoliberal rules around the world. They put these into the the trade deals, fundamentally, the model of the economy. Um, And there is a fundamental environmental problem with that whole logic. I mean, something like 5% at the moment of CO2 emissions come from um, trade, and we see the Suez Canal at the at the moment, and that's that's likely to go up to ten percent. And so that's kind of a general thing. But the two specifics I would say is um, there's something called an investor court system, which is effectively it's a it's a type of what's known as an investor state dispute settlement mechanism, um, which is a thing that's in all these trade deals these days, or they attempt to put it all these trade deals, which is um, really an insidious attempt to create a parallel justice system which corporations can access and can sue states if they interfere with their with the rights of corporations their rights to to profit that's probably that's the headline thing that i think rightly has grabbed a lot of attention and the other thing to mention is um which again is kind of portrayed as a lot more technical and stuff is a thing called the regulatory cooperation forum um which Again, sounds okay, just kind of, and I think this is a plan. It just, just sounds like boring. It's like, okay, yeah, they want to have a form to discuss regulations, let them off. But what it's about is bringing representatives of corporations to the heart of writing regulations, which are actually really, really important in terms of environmental standards, labor standards, consumer rights, etc. Um, and undermining democratic processes and democratic overchecks, uh, oversights of, of these things. Right. And, and you mentioned, uh, you know, investor state dispute settlement there, the, the ISES court system, which is, I think it's been a feature of almost every free trade deal of this nature, these mega trade deals, uh, that they try to devolve more and more rights to these uh, multinational corporations. Uh, but now they kind of changed the name of it. It's now the investor court system is what they use. And is that actually any different to ISDS at all? Uh, I know when it came to ISDS, you know, the likes of Joseph Stiglitz, who's a Nobel Prize winning economist, they referred to it as like litigation terrorism, you know? So like, is that still the case under the, the, the kind of new investor court system? Yeah, I mean, maybe first of all, to expand a little bit on what ISDS is, um, and like you say, this is this is like is a kind of at the heart of a lot of trade deals done around the world now, rather than again anything to do with actual like customs levels, tariffs, etc. Um, and so it, this has been incorporated. For example, it's in the NAFTA uh, agreement. It was going to be a key part of uh, TTIP, um, and there have been since they kind of started a couple of decades ago um, but then kind of accelerated in the last number of years there's been over a thousand cases worldwide these are cases whereby corporations can bring states to court but it's not it's not the court that you or i can access it's it's not an independent judicial process with all its flaws that we understand and they're private arbitration courts um uh, and in the traditional agreements Basically, the companies get to choose the arbitrators, get to choose the lawyers. And you're not talking about small amounts of 
money here. Um, so in, in those over a thousand cases, there have been over $600 billion worth of claims. So companies have claimed for over $600 billion worth of like damages, um, and they've been awarded, more worryingly, over $100 billion. Um, and what they, they basically can sue with like, it's, it's not written in these terms. I'll, I'll explain how it is written, but it, it, it fundamentally is about you're interfering with my right to profit. I'm a corporation. I have certain expectations about how I can profit and you're interfering with that right. If you do anything like that, I'm going to sue you in these, um, in these courts, supposed courts. Um, and uh, how, how it's written, for example, in the CETA agreement, how it's written is there's a ban on direct expropriation and on indirect expropriation. Um, so direct expropriation is, let's say, um, and direct expropriation is something that if we had a socialist government in this country, an eco-socialist government, it's something that we'd be seeking to do. Um, so let's say that a Canadian company was involved in um, private healthcare. And we have the election of a left government implementing an eco-socialist program. And it says we're going to um, build a national health service. And as part of that, we're going to incorporate the private health sector into the public health system. And we're going to expropriate. We're going to take out of private hands, you know, the, the Canadian company's equivalent of the beacon. And we're going to bring it into the public health service. And that's direct expropriation. And you can't do that under... CETA. So they, they would have the right to sue you in one of these tribunals um, if you try to do that. And isn't it usually the case that, you know, the countries that are targeted by these tribunals or are being sued by these multinational corporations are usually a kind of like, you know, less well-off, poor, smaller countries in the developing world. And certainly Ireland would probably fit into that, you know, category of a small country, which is, you know, easily targeted by litigation. You, know, you see how the Irish government just caved into Apple when it comes to the Apple tax and stuff like that. So, Yeah, I mean, like, U.S. corporations in particular are like very active on this, obviously backed up by the weight of U.S. imperialism, broadly speaking, um, and U.S. corporations like people were rightly appalled by TTIP. Um, but a lot of U.S. corporations that have subsidiaries or offshoots or whatever based in Canada, that they could use then to sue. Um, so there's that direct expropriation, but also a thing called indirect expropriation. And basically indirect expropriation is that in, if you interfere with their right to profit, you have, they say, you've effectively expropriated my, my property. So for example, let's say if a Canadian company involved in nursing homes um, and uh, the government says, we're going to increase the ratio of staff per patient that you have to have in a nursing home. Canadian company can then say, wait a minute, that's that's interfering. That's expropriation. You're not you're not allowing us to use our property in the way that we want to use it. That's indirect expropriation. They can sue um, similarly. Um, and so, just to give a glimpse of like some of the cases um, that have been taken, like a, a, a classic one. Thankfully, they they lost in this case. Was um, Veolia, um, is a major French multinational, sued Egypt because they increased the minimum wage. Um, a Swedish company called uh, Vattenfall sued the German government because they banned uh, nuclear uh, power. Um, Philip Morris, the cigarette giant, sued Uruguay because they introduced regulations about cigarette uh, packaging, which I think were actually similar to the regulations we have. Um, and at the moment, for example, there's a major Canadian company that is suing the Romanian government because they have banned open cast uh, mining. Um, and like Ireland is relatively lucky at the moment because the only ISDS agreement we're tied into, we, we are in one, which is under the um, what's called the Energy Charter. And there's an attempt 
like progressive organisations etc to get rid of the ISDS from that um, but we're thankfully not in uh, in other ones and like I think in thinking about it, it's important to think there's, there's two aspects to it there's actually the direct thing that like let's say you had a left government that was actually trying to implement policies in the interests of the environment and the interests of working class people you could be faced with being dragged before these courts you know obviously I think a left government would have to say wait a minute we're not recognising these courts we're not going to be bound by these decisions but there's that direct thing um, but there's also another thing which is maybe is really the is it even the main purpose is that, like in a way the 600 billion dollars worth of claims hides a bigger issue which is what's kind of known as regulatory chill that um you know we, we know how the irish government says oh we can't do that for example the irish government says we, we can't build housing because of the EU fiscal rules we just can't use the money but this would be an excuse not to ban let, let's say not to introduce regulations to regulate how um uh, how, how data centres can be built in this country. The Canadian companies want to build data centres, but you have to say, well, there's a real problem with this. They have to have their own power, renewable power sources. It can't take from other... They, the Irish government, well, we can't do that because we're in CETA. You know, it'll be used as an excuse and a kind of a freezing thing to put fear in governments that you can't do these do these things. Um, so that's that's kind of broadly what ISDS um, tries to, to do. All right, and as we see from all that, that like, these court cases are already occurring, you know, Canadian companies are already suing the remaining government and so on. So it's definitely not like some kind of abstract fear. It's a real thing. Uh, and of course, the investor court system doesn't change any of that really fundamentally. Yeah. I mean, so like, like that's, it's actually like hilarious how like the Green Party have tried to hang their change of position on like, oh, it's not ISDS, it's ICS. So like, it's all different when it's, it's, it's effectively the same. So that... The difference that has taken place is rather than it being um, uh, so in in the traditional ISDS, um, I'm a big multinational corporation. I want to sue a state, and just be clear by the way, companies can sue states. States can't sue companies. It's a one way process, you know. Um, but let's say I want to sue a state, um, then uh, I generally go and pick who it is, and they're kind of like once-off people. So there's a huge incentive on arbitrators to find in favour of the companies so that other companies go and pick them later on. You know, it's hugely lucrative business. So the answer to this, they say, is, well, this is different because we're going to have um, we're going to have three arbitrators um, and uh, they're going to be kind of more long-lasting than, than normal. Um, but then in each particular case, like one is chosen by the company, one is chosen by the state, and one is kind of jointly chosen uh, or whatever. Um, but there, the same incentive still exists. I mean, the whole thing is, is awful. But the same incentive still exists for the arbitrators to find in favour of the companies because they get paid. Like, to what's in the agreement is $3,000 a day. Um, and like... The companies are the ones who are taking the cases. The more cases there are, the more they're going to get paid. So even though they're sitting there like relatively permanently or more permanently than the normal thing for a longer duration, it's in their interest for there to be more cases. And even the um, the German uh, there's a German association of judges. It, they said it. They said that this thing, the not just ISDS but ICS, the Canadian the the CETA version, they said that it doesn't meet the kind of international standards required for the independence of the judiciary. Um, so it's it's not, you know, and like, it's funny because I remember I, I got an, into an argument on Twitter with someone. That's where all the best arguments happen. <laughs> and but like, where they're like, well, it's just the right of people to go to court. If we didn't have CETA, if we didn't have ISDS, the Canadian 
a Canadian company can still sue the Irish government under like Irish law in Irish courts, the same legal process that any of the rest of us, but they can't engage in the same degree of litigation terrorism in a completely like unfair playing field where things are absolutely stacked to their advantage against the interests of the people in the in the country. Yeah, it really is, you know, the left often talks about how, you know, the state is biased in the favor of the rich and the powerful and the one percent, and then you have this case that really lays it all bare where you have like a core system which is literally, you know, built for big businesses mm-hmm. very nakedly. Uh, and you, you mentioned before the kind of regulatory cooperation forum, speaking of big business, right? And it's it's funny how they always kind of shield their very kind of nasty things in kind of neutral sounding terms so regulatory cooperation forum sounds very nice and all but like what actually is it to my understanding it's like a chamber of big business lobbyists essentially so can you know more on that yeah this this was this was similarly a part of the ttip um agreement which was being negotiated between the eu and the us um and it actually is a core part of it and i still think i think it has gotten like not enough attention um so basically if implemented fully um ceta would establish this regulatory cooperation uh, forum, um, as well as some other kind of regulatory dialogues is what they're called. Um, and th- the idea of this, so that the, their logic, what they kind of put forward publicly is, so as a part of like having more free trade, they want the regular regulations to come into alignment. And those regulations will generally come into alignment downwards rather than upwards. It'll be a race to the bottom rather than a race upwards. But also they're looking at a situation where new regulations will come into effect over time. And there's a danger of what they call regulatory drift, whereby, you know, the EU introduced regulations A, B and C, but in the same areas, the Canadian government introduces regulations D, E and F. So they say, oh, very reasonably, oh, well, therefore we have to have regulatory cooperation and we establish this forum to, uh, to do it. Um, and so the forum looks at regulations before they're put into effect in the EU or the US. At the very earliest stages of the drafting process, they discuss here. They say, um, we need to have new regulations about waste and what waste you're allowed to have and what waste you can't and how it has to be disposed of, etc., etc. And at that table, at that dialogue, at that forum, is the uh, Canadian Chamber of Commerce and the... Um, the effectively the the equivalent the European equivalent of uh, IBEC, um, which is the name Business Europe is what it's called. Um, they will be heart, front and center, and this stuff really matters. Like this can all sound like, and it's it's a really way that lobbying works in the, in the European institutions. Is there's a lot of very what looks like very boring stuff about like how long this should be and how long that should be, and but these you know lobbyists spend you know, hundreds of millions or billions of euros lobbying on these particular things because mm-hmm. they matter. Um, so, for example, you know, having like safe seatbelts in cars, like that's like the fact that your seatbelt has to be like, you know, reasonably strong, has to stop you coming out. Like that's all written down in a regulation somewhere that there's certain restrictions about what kind of seatbelt and how they have to work and pass certain standards, etc., etc. Or that says that like, you know what I mean? In, in Europe, we don't have GMOs um, or that says that we don't have chlorine washed chicken or ractopamine fed pork or hormone fed beef. That, that's all written down in, in regulations. And basically, this will put the corporations and their lobbyists at the very center of writing those regulations, which will you know accelerate a race to the bottom in terms of um, regulatory conditions on labor, on environment uh, and on consumer rights. And just one example to give of, of how this has affected things in the past is that precisely... 
over 10 years ago, there was an attempt in Europe to introduce um, new directives in terms of waste and the, the you know, scrapping of electronic waste and what could be in it, etc. And there was original proposal and there was some sort of regulatory dialogue set up with the US um, where US corporations and their, their lobbyists were dominant and they managed to delay this, which would be like an important measure for 10 years until finally the, the Danish government took a court case to put it into effect. So like this works, it, like they have the time and energy to like fight every single regulation tooth and nail that's going to hurt them and instead to try and get things shaped in their interests. Okay, so basically we're looking at, you know, a form that facilitates a race to the bottom, but we don't have any regulated seatbelts to fucking, you know, uh, shield us when things crash, you know? So I think that that's, that's definitely, it's a big deal. Um, people aren't really talking about it, is right. Um, so you made some references to the Green Party a few times during this discussion, and I think it's kind of important kind of to, to register, like, the environmental aspect of this, that this Green Party ran on a program uh in the elections to fight for the environment. And uh, it's so clearly now, in every step of the way, um, since it's joined the government, kind of went back and betrayed those promises, betrayed its voters' aspirations and hopes. Uh, so I think what makes actually see this so bad for the environment concretely uh, here? Yeah, I mean, a few things. One is the, the general impact in terms of this increasing integration of the world economy based on a neoliberal model. Um, and I do think, again, Sue is, is like... You know, like, I think it can seem for people sometimes that, like, you know, you buy your stuff online and then it arrives, like, you know, but it arrives in ships from China. Do you know what I mean? That, like, are a huge cause of um, carbon emissions and are a rising cause of, of carbon emissions. And it isn't sustainable on a global basis to have this model um, continue. Um, but also very practically, like, I think it's arguable that the biggest impact of regulatory cooperation, the biggest impact of their the investor court system will be in terms of environmental um, regulations. Like if you look internationally, that's a huge factor in terms of the nuclear power, in terms of open cast mining. Um, there's loads and loads of cases like that, where if governments take action in the interests of the environment, then you know, they can say, like, so for example, um, let's say you have CETA in place, let's say government was then at that point when CETA was already in place was to say, we have to leave all oil and gas on the ground. That, that like, that does definitely meet the category of indirect expropriation, you know, because even you can say, oh, you, you still own it, you know, we didn't expropriate you, let's say, leave it in your hands, let's say you did that, but they can't take it out of the ground. So you can, you know what I mean? There's, there's a logic for them to say, well, it's indirect expropriation. Um, and in that case, well, then the Canadian corporation could take a case to one of these tribunals where the lawyers are paid 3000 the arbitrators are paid $3,000 a day, and it's in their interest to find in favor of the company. And if they do, they could find that you have to pay, the state would have to pay damages um, to, to tens of billions of euros. And again, the point is that in advance of getting to that point, um, if CETA is in place, well, the government will say, well, we can't do that now. We can't do what, what we need in terms of uh, the environment uh, because of um, the impact of, because that, the threat of being sued, that, that regulatory chill. Right, yeah, and I think it's it's really important as well to register that like that the purpose of trade agreements is to facilitate greater and greater amounts of trade between countries, and that also includes, and particularly with CETA, the, the growth of polluting industries such as you know sectors of sectors of the agricultural industry, dairy and beef, uh, where like it's very much the, the central point for us here in Ireland that a lot of people are concerned about is the lower on uh, the, the increase in the quotas of dairy exports and beef imports, uh, which 
benefits the beef barons here, but also hammers small farmers uh, in both Canada and Ireland. Uh, so I think, you know, while this trade is putting more money in the pockets of, of these kind of big polluters, how is it affecting small farmers? Like it's the seed is already being kind of in place for small farmers for a number of years. Really, they've been feeling the effect, but how does this really affect them concretely? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the point is that um, all of these agreements are basically for the benefit of the big corporations in whatever sector. They're the ones that have the so-called offensive um, interests. And um, that's big agribusiness in agriculture. And it puts small businesses, small farmers or small businesses in competition with these big players. Um, And it it is also the fact that um, in North America, I mean, you know, the standards are worse in the US than they are in Canada, which is why TTIP was more obviously like horrific for people when you saw like, you know, the kind of conditions that exist in US agriculture. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're also bad in terms of um, uh, Canada. And you're putting small farmers in Ireland in competition with like big agribusinesses based in Canada. Probably more importantly, though, is the signal that it sends in terms of the future, in terms of Mercosur, which will present you know, even more of a direct threat to small farmers uh, in Ireland, as well as being environmentally um, absolutely disastrous for like all sorts of reasons, not least the kind of burning down of the Amazon at an incredible uh, rate in order to make way for big ranchers um, in Brazil. Like that's what's, that's what's happening. Um, So I I think if we could stop CETA, that obviously sends a very strong signal in terms of uh, Mercosur. Um, So that's that's another way that it's important. Right. Okay. And, you know, you know, speaking of CETA itself, like, where is it at the moment? Like, is it going to be going through the doll and all kind of stuff? Yeah. So so uh, officially trade is what's called a European competence. So it's a power of the European Commission normally just to try if, if CETA was deemed just to be a trade agreement. Uh, this this comes from the Lisbon Treaty. It's one of the reasons we opposed the Lisbon Treaty. Um, the European Commission can just side trade, sign trade deals. There's no, it doesn't have to be a vote in the doll, anything like that. And um, thankfully, people took a case to the European Court of Justice, arguing that this isn't just a trade agreement. It's actually what's known as a mixed agreement. So there's a trade element, but also a non-trade element because of all the other stuff, including the investor-state dispute settlement um, stuff. So the consequence of that is that this was like signed and done in 2016, begins to be provisionally implemented in some respects from 2017, um, but uh, still, so and was passed by the European uh, Commission and begins to be implemented, but still has to be voted on because it's so-called a, a mixed agreement, has to be voted on by every national parliament in the European Union. Um, and that's a good thing. For us, you know, that means there's some element of democratic check. Um, at an earlier stage in the process, the Wallonian Parliament in in Belgium, um, kind of put a spanner in the works by opposing it or threatening to oppose it. Um, and it means there's all these votes have to happen across Europe, and they're all potential focal points for campaigning. Um, right now, for example, the Cypriot Parliament has voted against it um, six or nine months ago. Um, with the, the left party, Akel, voting, you know, more out of something akin to the arguments that I'm making here, um, but the, some other parties voting against in order to extract concession for, uh, like, a designated origin for Halloumi, um, which obviously is made in, in, in Cyprus. And I think they're going to give that concession and then they're going to go, go for another vote in Cyprus and they're probably likely to get it through. Um, but then the vote in the in the doll in Ireland becomes very, very important. So the government tried to rush it through um, 
before before 20, at the end of 2020 as far as I remember yeah. and then they tried to come back again but then it's they've been faced by a lot of opposition from the public that's been reflected then in the fact that they've had to go to put it into a few different committees not as many as we would we would want but a few different committees are uh, discussing it and um a green TD, Patrick Costello, who was you know, personally opposed to CETA, certainly it seems, or at least he's saying it has to be properly scrutinised, has taken a court case to see whether it is constitutional. Um, ultimately, I would say, you know, all those things, um, you know, we'll fight on every single one of those corners, but ultimately it's likely to come back to a vote again uh, in the doll. Um, and that'll be the crucial thing. And you know, we have to fight to make Ireland the centre point of the struggle against CETA because we have the capacity to stop CETA and to stop ISDS or the ICS system by having a vote against in the in the Dáil. And if the Dáil does vote against it, does that stop then the whole trade deal for the rest of the European Union or is it just uh, fine to Ireland? Well, it is being provisionally applied, but it should stop it for the whole of the European Union because it is meant to be agreed unless they were to separate out it's the only thing I think, could they separate, let's say you had a parliament that continued to vote against it, it didn't just be vote against it once and then we give a go again. Mm. Um, the only way they could do that is to separate it out and to say, well, the trade agreement bits will stay because that's a trade competence and the other bits won't. That's yeah. the only question I'd have. Okay. Um, and so, so in terms of actually, you know, we need, we obviously need to oppose this. So how do we oppose that? How do we get to the point that we're actually a majority in the doll votes against this uh, bill or this vote? Yeah, I mean, there's like, you know, I think a, a very real reason that they um, we have the kind of European treaties that we have that take power away from national parliaments and give it to the European Commission is to make things further away from ordinary people and to make them less susceptible to pressure from below because it all happens so far away in all this technical language that people just can't follow it. Um, so there's a thing that we used to refer to when I was in the European Parliament as the, the Dracula strategy, which is to bring things out into the public. So bring them out into the light so people can see them and then they can be killed. Um, and that's basically what we need to do in terms of CETA. We need to demystify it. We need to explain how this is about workers' rights. It's about small farmers' rights. It's about our environment. It's about consumer safety. You know, it's about all of these issues and it's about democracy. Um, and just like, you know, make this relevant to people um, like we've tried to do and to try and then get people to put pressure on um, politicians. Um, so there are various campaigns. I mean, obviously we're all restricted, uh, unfortunately, because of, of COVID in terms of the amount of mobilizing and stuff that's, that's happening. So mostly right now, the campaigning is happening online um, around the hashtag Stop CETA. Um, and... You know, an important thing to do anyway is to um, contact politicians and put them under pressure to to get a commitment to vote against CETA. Don't be worried about getting a commitment to say, oh, we need more scrutiny and blah, blah, blah. Fine. Like, we already have them up now. Try and get a commitment that you're going to vote against um, CETA. And a mechanism to do that, of course, is to, like, tell more people about us, to spread this video but also to spread the the podcast that we, this will be turned into for rupture radio um and uh let more and more people know raise awareness about what this represents and make it make it real for people give some of the examples of the cases that have previously taken place and the threat that that this represents all right thanks paul for the explainer it was very informative um so you know, anyone has any uh, questions, feel free to put in the comments and hopefully we'll get back to you. Um, other than that, 
Any any final comments, Paul? No. Thanks everybody for listening. All right. Thanks for listening. Uh, see you another time. Bye.